we've shifted our attention to circular food systems. Uh, this recent work really continues our commitment to work collaboratively. Um, our circular food system research and engagement has been delivered along with Circular Economy Leadership Canada, Guelph Wellington's Our Food Future, Save On Foods, and the Vancouver Economic Commission. Our emerging focus on circular food systems really grew out of Circular Economy Leadership Canada's Circular Solutions Series. Uh, in April this year, we held a Circular Food Solutions workshop with food system stakeholders across Canada. It was a really great event. We had a lot of, a lot of you that are online this morning, we had a lot of you there. Um, the workshop aimed to test out what we learned through a landscape scan that we produced with Guelph Wellington in 2021. And that scan really explored uh, the types of circular food solutions being implemented, <clears throat> where in Canada they were, they were taking place, and the barriers and opportunities these solutions face. We heard many things in that workshop, and one of them was that was that people, whether it was in business or government or in community organizations, uh, people really wanted to understand more about behavior change strategies for food system players. And these players ranged from food producers to consumers, local governments to charities and so on. So it was quite, quite broad. So this webinar is really a first step in responding to that interest expressed in that April workshop. So today we're going to look at uh, drivers of culture shifts and changes in behavior. We're going to explore a range of behavior change strategies, their efficacy, how to access them, what to consider when using them. We will hear about the experiences of local government and business advisors who have used these behavior change strategies and what's made them successful. So we're going to cover a lot of ground today. Uh, and with that, I'd like to introduce our wonderful speakers. Um, joining us today, we have Angela Cooper, Senior Strategist and Practice Manager with BeWorks. Uh, for those of you who attended our Zero Waste Conference, you may have heard uh, Angela there. You may remember Angela. Rosemary Cooper is with us today. She is the Project Director for the Share, Reuse, Repair Initiative Rosemary has worked with businesses to identify market drivers and business opportunities for circularity and the behavior change strategies that really support that shift. And then last but not least, we have Joanne Gauchi, who is a senior advisor with Mitch Vancouver and the National Zero Waste Council, and I'm very pleased to see my colleague. Uh, she is the lead for Love Food Hate Waste Canada, the National Zero Waste Council's signature consumer-facing campaign uh, to address food waste at home. Joanne has really grown this campaign across the country, and she's going to share her experiences with its evolution. Welcome, Angela, Rosemary, Joanne, if you guys could just give a wave. There we go. All right. Okay. So again, attendees, uh, feel free to put your questions in the Q&A uh, section of, of uh, the Zoom as we move through it. And Angela, I'm going to give it to you to take it away. Wonderful. Thank you. So... As we consider today how we can create circular food solutions, our first thought might be, how can we raise awareness? You know, maybe it's about educating people on the value of the circular food economy. And while education and information can be important components of behavior change, what decades of scientific research has revealed is that it's often not enough. Because you know, even if we get people to be on the same page about the importance of creating a circular food economy, 
we're still more often than not going to be running up against a value action gap. That is, there's still going to be behavioral and psychological barriers in the minds of consumers, investors, business owners, and practitioners that are going to prevent them from acting in accordance with their values. And so how can we start to think about overcoming that gap and driving the kind of sustainable food behaviors we need? So researchers have developed a framework for thinking about how to approach sustainable behavior change called SHIFT, which outlines five categories of strategies, social influence, habit formation, the individual self, feelings and cognition, and tangibility. I'm just gonna briefly introduce each of these to just give you a flavor of these different levers. So starting with social influence, we know that people are influenced by the presence, behaviors, and expectations of others. And you know, by others, what I mean here is they can be everything from peers to other businesses in your sector. And so just to illustrate, communicating social norms, so what other people are doing and how many might be doing it, has been shown to be an effective behavior change strategy. So for instance, norm messaging was found to increase composting in university campuses by 21%, for example. Another way you can approach this idea of social influence is to make things visible to others. And this can take many forms from making things socially visible, like socially visible pledges, or making the behaviors themselves visible. So just as an example, Halifax, for instance, mandated the use of clear garbage bags. So your waste then became visible to others. And that led to a 24% decrease in waste volume going to landfills. So thinking about the next lever around habit formation. So fundamentally, habit changes come down to disrupting bad habits and making it easy to establish new ones. And there are many routes that we could think about to achieving that. And one that I wanted to call out is defaults. So if we can make the desired action the default, it can be extremely powerful at driving action. I just want to take an example of, of reducing meat consumption, for instance. And there have been field studies that have shown that if you default lunch choices to be vegetarian rather than non-vegetarian, still provide people the option of asking for a non-vegetarian dish. This leads people to choose vegetarian meals like 87% of the time versus 2% when the default is non-vegetarian, which is, of course, the standard. Another strategy to think about supporting habit formation is getting people to pre-prepare. This is an important one to help close that value action gap, having a specific plan for what you're going to do and when and where you're going to do it has been shown to significantly increase people's rate of follow-through on those intentions. Take, you know, Meatless Monday, for an example. Okay. So this third lever is around the individual self. So how we perceive ourselves and our desire to maintain a kind of good, positive self-concept can have a powerful influence on behavior. And so it's going to be important to ask ourselves this question of how can we appeal to the values and identity of your target audience. Because we want to believe that you know, doing the right thing for the environment is important to everyone, but there are going to be other values that are going to get prioritized. So how can we reframe things in ways that matter to people? For instance, is it about civic duty? 
Is it about bolstering your community? Is it about being resourceful and saving money for your family? These are different kind of values we can potentially be appealing to. We can also ask, how can we help people see how their actions have an impact? Because people are more likely to undertake a behavior if they have the confidence that those actions are going to have a meaningful impact. And so it's going to be important to frame participation in any sustainable behavior to make that connection for them between their behavior and the desired outcome, such as these campaigns that very saliently illustrate uh, what will happen if a person recycles their bottles, for instance. So this fourth lever, we're going to talk about feelings and cognition together, because people generally take one of those two routes to take action. And so when we think about cognition, the kind of obvious route is to provide people the information they need to make an informed decision, just lay out the facts. But the reality is there is no neutral presentation of information. How we convey information can have a powerful impact. So for instance, something as simple as describing the potential impact of an initiative using loss framing, so indicating the negative consequences of not engaging in a behavior, led to a significant increase in, in this case, recycling behaviors relative to, to gain framing the approach, so focusing on the positive consequences speaking to the power of something as simple as shifting how that same information is framed. The other side of that coin is, is the role of emotion in decision making. Now, you know, the advertising examples here are extreme and, and rather shocking, and I think there is this desire to try and shake people out of apathy and, and give them kind of this shocking emotional negative content. But it's important to consider when using emotional appeals the need to strike a kind of emotional balance. There is an importance to leveraging some negative emotion to create that sense of urgency and avoid complacency, but to balance that with positivity and self-efficacy, sort of showing that people can do it. Otherwise, there's this risk of people just throwing up their hands and saying, well, I can't do anything. This last lever is around tangibility. So sustainability and its impact is very abstract. It's very distant from the self. So how can we translate this impact into terms that people understand that are personally relevant to someone, such as providing you know, striking equivalencies like producing one burger patty requires the equivalent of 36 showers, something that's very personal and identifiable to people. Or how can we talk about the impact at a local level versus on a more global scale. So anything, sorry, anything we can do to help make it real and tangible for, for people that can drive behaviors. And so that gives you just a very quick overview of just some of the different levers to consider when you're trying to drive behavior and build that circular food economy. And so this is not just consumer behavior that we can think about. We can think about the behavior of investors or other decision makers. So to close things off, I just want to briefly touch on two case studies to bring some of these concepts to life. The first addresses the adoption of sustainable farming practices. So cocoa farmers uh, in West Africa were found to not really be adopting sustainable farming practices. And so the World Cocoa Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization, partnered with BEWorks uh, to understand the barriers to adoption. And amongst the many practical and psychological barriers, we identified 
two key ones, loss aversion and present bias. So that is, people feel averse or uh, they don't like the idea of losing money in the now for future gains. And so to address uh, these biases, our recommendation was to have farmers pre-commit to earmarking a portion of their next sale towards investing in sustainable practices in their farm. So tying pre-commitment to spend money as revenues increase minimizes the feeling of loss associated with putting that money away. So just another way of thinking about pre-commitment that we talked about earlier. And in this last case study, we talk about reducing household food waste. So this was work done in partnership with Hellman's, who worked with the eWorks to develop a behavior change program for families. And among the many barriers to using up food that we identified, one key barrier was around people feeling that like they just don't have the time or energy to figure out what to do with the spare ingredients that they have. And so going back to when we talked about habit formation, we thought about how can we make it easy for people? And so we developed a tool we called the three plus one approach, which is just a kind of rule of thumb to make it easier for them to think differently about meal preparation and how they can combine the food that they have. And we found when testing this program, it had a significant impact on reducing household food waste. So hopefully this very quick overview of the shift framework and the different levers that have been found to be effective in influencing behavior gives you just some food for thought on how you might be able to be creative and leverage these strategies. So I'm gonna turn things now uh, to Rosemary uh, to talk more about how we might be able to apply these initiatives in the real world. Thank you, Angela. Great examples that I'm sure we're gonna uh, pick up on Rosemary, over to you. Thank you so much. Just getting off mute there. Um, thrilled to be here today. Um, I'm the project director with an organization called Share Reuse Repair Initiative. And as mentioned, and our mission is really to support the growth of the circular economy as a waste and climate solution and enable everyone to live circular and support resilient local economies and positive business innovation. We're sort of focused both on creating a greater supply of circular goods and services, but also cultivating that cultural and consumer demand. And that latter part is why I'm, I'm really here um, today. Um, I'm going to talk to you first about a global insight study that we have been involved with that really signs a strategic light on consumer goods innovation and shows that the consumer demand for sustainable consumption is higher right now than we imagined maths market right now and growing into the future and then while the focus is on consumer goods for this particular one i'm going to share the linkages that we found um, to the food sector and as i said this was about consumer goods and it really began with this question is our relationship to stuff changing and the answer really was quite simple uh, it was quite yes it is we were starting to see leading edge consumers with sort of post-materialistic attitudes and behaviors driving disruptive innovation spaces. These were identified in seven countries back in 2016, but notably Canada wasn't included and Canadian businesses were not involved. And so we thought, okay, when we heard that in 2021, in the midst of COVID, that it was time to do this again, um, we pulled a team together because we wanted the Canadian market and Canadian leading edge consumers to be involved and uh, much appreciation to, to Canadian Tire who stepped in to sponsor this work and as a result their C-suite had an opportunity to learn about the qualitative and quantitative insights 
as they emerged. Now, a key part to this methodology is what's called leading edge consumers. And we don't, you know, we don't look at leading edge consumers because they're necessarily, um, you know, our customers, but we look into them because they're a strategic window into existing and future market demand. These are a group of people, they're 13% of the population. They have knowledge about newness. They're creative, but not radical. And they're pushing for change within the system. So in short, they are market shapers. And if we know it's in their hearts and minds, it can help us strategically um, determine innovation directions. Now, this project had, had you know, a little bit about the methodology, had four phases. And you know, this was Alice Labs methodology and involved a qualitative deep dive with over 300 hours of involvement with leading edge consumers, interviews, hack fests, um, to identify and describe these new innovation territories. But then there was a quantitative segmentation, both of the leading edge and the mass market population in Canada that showed um, in order to quantify where that demand was now and where it was heading. So fortunately, it was really exciting to see that we had four opportunity areas validated as having mass market potential. The most established in Canada is called useful stuff. And what that means is that 37% of consumers in Canada highly resonate with, resonate with the attitudes and the behaviors in this space. However, if we include those that resonate and highly resonate, it is growing to 63% in about five years time. That is mass market. And so what we see in this space is people value use of the things they have, not necessarily possession. They want things to last for a long time. They want support and ownership, and they want to know that things are not going to waste, that there's an end of life solution. Now, there's another innovation territory that I'm going to particularly relevant that's listed here. It's called connecting to nature. <clears throat> and this is where we really see food come out. 27% um, interest right now amongst the mass market growing to 45% and people really wanting a sense of calm and renewal and groundedness by connection to nature through materials and to society also through the means of production. And then we also saw flowing stuff. This is the most obviously circular, if you like, innovation territory. It is a more emergent. It has 15% demand right now, growing to 30%. But we're seeing goods as a part of a system of flow. But what I wanted to pull out is even though this talked about goods, we actually started to see connection to food systems, which we thought was interesting. So in the conversation about useful stuff, we heard people talking about composting as something, composting their food waste, as something that they did in their daily lives that connected them to, to, to nature. And so something like this loamy, um, you know, um, composter that sits on your counter, turns your food waste into usable, sorry, that is meant to say dirt, not direct, in a few hours, is something that we saw connecting both to useful stuff, innovation territory, and connecting to nature. It's useful, it releases the burden because you have the option to send back your loamy to be responsibly cycled at the end of life. And this is really important to that significant portion of the population. Um, but also, if these guys wanted to improve this product, they would think about offering care and repair services because that useful stuff segmentation, they wanna know that they are supported when they own something. 
So stuff connecting to nature, I said, we saw food come in here. People were talking about the stuff in their lives, but they also ended up talking about food. There's a connection here. So one of the examples that came out is these are a set of coolers that are made from coconut husk waste. Otherwise, that would be burned, which of course releases carbon into the atmosphere, performed better than most traditional coolers, and that really was that expectation as well. But also, people really wanted to know that they were connecting to the people who made these things, the farmers and the materials at the heart of these products, and they also told that story. Um, we also heard people talking about in, in amongst these leading edge consumers were talking about regenerative agriculture. They knew about that, they were aware of it. And so they pointed out to examples like Nature's Path. I mean, Nature's Path is, you know, launching the world's first regenerative organic certified oatmeal in 2020. So really noticing that this is coming up in these conversations. We had these large global evolution trends that we saw, and I think these are very relevant to food waste prevention. There was, compared to 2016, a significant increase engagement in conversations about sustainability and aspirations to curb consumption, but also uniquely an awakening to an understanding that we have scarce resources and that we need circular flows. And really an, a strong expectation that we want to search for brands that align with one's values and are doing positive things for society and planet. And an expectation that brands are really stepping up in a way um, to do so. Now I talked about flowing stuff. And I guess there's a question in my mind at this point, and we can hypothesize that a lot of that expectation that stuff goes from one use and one user to another might also um, go over into the food sector. And we'd be really interesting in, in, in asking the same question of leading edge consumers in the food sector. And that is, is our relationship to food changing? I suspect it is. Two minutes. Pardon me? Two minutes to go. Okay. So the other program that I wanted to talk about is you've already heard Angela talk about the say do gap. What we decided to do was we kept on hearing that this was a barrier to circular um, innovators. And so we designed a shifting consumer behavior program that was cohort based, that would be able to take this out um, to SMEs, enterprises, cities, and nonprofits. Thank you, Angela, for going over those factors. What we did is we went through the steps, understand your target market, do behavioral mapping, learn about the framework, and design and test shift-based messages. One of the things that we uniquely did is we used these new way of segmenting called lighter living motivation segments to help people understand the diverse motivations of their target markets. And you can see here that how pe what people connect to is very different. If I'm waste not want not, you can talk to me directly about zero waste with facts and rational thoughts. But if I happen to be an eco-trend segmentation, um, please use emotion and pleasure-based messages to speak to me and talk more about what my friends and other people are doing. So you can see here, Healthy Life and Planet, um, talk to me. I'm doing, I'm eating more plant-based because it tastes better. Eco-trends, um, I'm doing it because I heard a conversation from my friends that influenced me. Waste not, want not, I'm doing it because meat is expensive and plant-based meals are a luxury. Um, uh, and no, are cost less. So you can see here that all of you, you can look at 
um, the first movers, the motivations that relate specifically to various food-based behaviors, and those that if you modified the messaging um, or the innovation, that you could convince them and you could bring them on board. So what this allowed people to do, this is just one example, I may have to end it at that, is that this is an example of a, a yarky sarky that takes a what, what would be considered a waste fish in Finland, and they made it into a product. What they realized is that when they first put out the marketing messaging, they were only reaching 9% of the population. But if they considered all the diverse motivations and reasons why people would purchase this product and tap into two more additional motivation segments, they got it up to 53% of the population of Finland okay. that would respond. I'm going to leave that here. So we also used, as I said, the motivation segments in our shift program. This is a zero waste store that um, uh, supports suburban mums, which is great. They went through, and I guess the key point that I want to say is they use the lighter living motivations to deeply, more deeply understand their suburban market. Uh, market. They determined that social influence was a really important factor. But they also realized that habit formation was key to success. And so they decided they needed to try habit formation to get habitual customers. And I'm going to end it right here because I know, Denise, I might be going over. What we learned through the shift framework is a couple of key things that I want to leave with you about shifting consumer behavior. And one is that there is no one size fits all. Our intuitions about behavior change may be wrong, and it's important to test and to figure out what works. Often you end up having messages that have a combination of shift factors. We found in waste prevention and encouraging circular behaviors and social influence together with other factors was really, really key. Um, and the lighter living motivations could help with individual behavior change. I have other slides, but I will leave it there. And we are exploring offering um, a variety of different programs around shift, shift light, shift full and we'd like to be able to make sure that everybody is involved in waste prevention has the opportunity um, to learn about how to do marketing communications that considers behavior change factors thank you fabulous thank you rosemary and i think we'll probably circle back to those lighter living motivations later on uh, in today's discussion that was great thank you wonderful um joanne over to you Great. Thank you, Denise. Um, it's a pleasure to be here today to talk about Love Food Hate Waste, and it's perhaps a slightly different perspective to Rosemary and Angela, so um, hopefully they round each other out nicely. Uh, so just to give everyone a sense, for those that are less familiar with Love Food Hate Waste, it is a global behavior change campaign um, that's operating in many other jurisdictions um, in addition to Canada. So it was originally developed by RAP in the UK, and it really has become this community of practice Practice where we're sharing insights and lessons learned across multiple jurisdictions from global to local. Um, just to provide you with a little bit of context in terms of its evolution here in Canada, Metro Vancouver first introduced Love Food Hate Waste as a regional campaign before then launching it across Canada with founding partners in 2018. And Metro Vancouver has a long history um, of expertise in running behavior change campaigns and so the national campaign 
campaign really benefited from those lessons learned and those insights um, and all of those um, kind of key takeaways in the early days. When we were developing the model for the national campaign, I think it's important to note this. We really thought that collaboration was really important in terms of how we were going to reach citizens across the country. And so what you see with Love Food Hate Waste is a really collaborative model and our campaign partners play a critical role in our success over time. So the council provides um, strategic direction for the campaign. We create a host of campaign materials to provide support to our partners, but our partners are really bringing the campaign to life in different communities across the country, which you'll see in a moment. So just to give you a sense in terms of why this conversation is so important, and I think we all know this, it's intuitive, but 63% of the food that we waste in the home is avoidable. So that's not the apple peels or the eggshells, it's the appetizers that don't seem so appetizing on the second day, the produce that gets soggy in the back of the fridge or the moldy bread. And so this really um, provides a compelling starting point uh, for the conversation and for change to take place. I think often we think um, we as consumers are not part of the problem, but the reality is, is that food is being wasted right across from farm to fork and we all have a role to play. So just to give you a sense of the fuller picture around the statistics, um, this will give you a, a bit of a, a sense of the magnitude of the issue, the economic and the environmental costs associated with that food waste. And I think more and more we're starting to think about this within the context of climate change as well. So data and research has always played a very important role in informing our strategy and our approach. And we conducted this research in 2017, and we've recently updated it to reflect changes in food costs, um, demographics, and also methodologies to assess climate impacts. And I think what it demonstrates is that while much has changed since 2018, um, the need to prevent household food waste is as relevant and compelling now as it ever has been. Particularly when you consider all those dramatic changes, the pressures we've seen in the last year, like rising food costs and supply chain disruptions. So the good news is that Canadians are really motivated to reduce their household food waste. Consumer Insights research that we did in 2020 indicated that 94% of Canadians really wanted to make changes at the home when it came to food waste. So this opens up and suggests a real window of opportunity in terms of making some lasting changes in this area. So just to give you a sense of the behaviors that we think are underpinning um, some of this issue, we often say that food is wasted because we buy too much, we cook too much, or we don't store that food correctly. So when thinking about influencing behavior change, we always come back to these three buckets of behaviors. And I would say it is a host of behaviors from the moment we start to plan what we're gonna bring into the home to how we prepare that food and how we ultimately use or don't use that food. So as Canada's leading resource to prevent household food waste, we really want to and try to come up with simple, actionable tips that tackle specific behaviors. We focus on communicating the benefits um, so citizens feel motivated to save that food and developing key messages that remove barriers that might be preventing a behavior change from taking place. So I think we know the reality is that behavior change is quite hard um, and people face different barriers. So I think this came up both with Rosemary and Angela. And so we really focus on trying to make one small change and building from there.
So very quickly, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but we can certainly come back to it. And if you look on our website, we do have a new three-year report. Um, but this will give you a sense as to how we brought Love Food Hate Waste to life over the past few years. And I think what you'll see here and what we've learned is that positive imagery and evoking that love of food is far more effective than images of rotting food, for example, um, and also pointing the finger. So guilt is not a good motivator. Um, for, for folks, it certainly isn't for myself, and so we really try to keep this in mind as we think about the different strategies and tactics moving forward. And again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here, but this will give you a sense of the different tactics that we use to bring the food hate waste to life. Um, the website is an amazing go-to resource, but it's only just one piece of the puzzle. And so there's many different ways that the campaign is coming to life. And instead of focusing, I think, on the specifics here, I'd like to just share how different stakeholders are actually bringing the food hate waste to life. So this slide here um, speaks to, I think, the importance of engaging businesses as well as grocers and manufacturers in particular. So certainly when you think about um, how we as citizens plan our food, shop in the grocery stores, are making these changes and, and um, having these different behaviors that are going to influence what we ultimately waste, it's important to be having these connection points along that journey. And so what you see reflected on this slide um, is different examples, communication examples, as well as in-store messaging. Um, that's really important when we think about how Love Food Hate Waste um, is communicated to citizens uh, across the country. Equally important to the campaign is the role of local governments as well as our nonprofit partners like Receipt Quebec and the Recycling Council of Alberta. Uh, there is just so much uh, outreach that's happening across the country from booths at community markets and event days to messaging at libraries and civic buildings, food preservation workshops, um, employee engagement events, cooking workshops. So this just gives you a flavor um, and I think speaks to the importance of having these conversations and the role that local governments and other nonprofit partners play um, in terms of reaching citizens where they're at. Two minutes. Two minutes. Okay. Um, the final piece I wanted to draw attention to is just how much more impact we can have when we work together on things like media. So again, here we can um, potentially leverage each other's limited funding dollars um, to have a, a much bigger impact when it comes to media buys, but we also are starting to see really a network of champions across the country that are willing and able to speak about the issue and also very passionate about it. Um, very briefly, just to highlight one success in 2022 where you saw all of these factors coming together, and that was Food Waste Action Week, which was in March. Um, and I think what this does is it really demonstrates the power of collaboration and how when we coordinate and amplify messaging and activities from the global to the local, we can have a, a really big impact together. So we will be doing this again in 2023, so I encourage you to reach out if you're at all interested in getting involved. And then finally, maybe just a few takeaways to see the discussion um, in terms of lessons learned from our four years of doing this work. 
Uh, the first is really around consistent messaging. So I think what we know is it takes a lot of time to do this work and consistent messaging year on year across multiple platforms is really important to effectively influence behavior change. Citizens need to hear and see that same message time and time again. And we have to make sure that our communications are clear and they're informed by data and research. Um, second would be cross-sector collaboration. To enable the first, you need the second, uh, but I think it's also important for other reasons. The more we can collaborate and align on what the ultimate objective and the ask is, the less consumer confusion we have in the marketplace. And we can have just much more impact by working together. So certainly I think what we're learning is that there is lessons learned that are shared. Um, we're able to scale small wins and we're minimizing the duplication of effort over time. And then finally, I would say a systems approach. Um, behavior change campaigns are really effective tools, but they're one tool in the toolkit. So we really need to nest that work within a broader set of work and an ambition to transform our linear food system to a circular food system and look at other enabling policies and regulatory frameworks and voluntary measures that can help us um, get there faster. So I think with that, I will leave it. Um, we do have some contact information here, but I'll also put my email in the chat in case you want to hear more. And I look forward to the discussion. Thanks, Denise. Thank you, Joanne. I have to say, you know, I know all of you, Joanne and I have worked together all the time. And I feel like after watching the presentations, I just, I, I have actually a lot of questions that I want to ask. Um, so thank you, thank all three of you for, your, for great information. Um, for those of you who are online today, uh, can't say enough about the Love Food Hate Waste campaign. And I have to, you know, do my plug uh, with Joanne. Um, you know, please, if you have any interest in that campaign, get in touch with us. It's fabulous. And it is a campaign that is designed to be uh, picked up by businesses, governments, and even community organizations. And Joanne is your person to, to talk to you around that stuff. So we do are starting to see some questions in the chat. Uh, sorry, not the chat, the Q&A. Uh, for those of you online, please uh, continue to populate your questions. Um, I'm going to, there's a couple here, we're going to start off right away. So um, Natalia, first of all, uh, Joanne, can you just tell us where we can access the research that you mentioned in your presentation? Kind of a quick one. Absolutely. So um, it is all online on the website. Our 2017 data is there. We've also done consumer and market uh, research, which you can find. I think about the issue is probably a good starting point, but if you can't find it, please get in touch. Great. Okay. So here's one, and this is going to be for all three of you, actually. Um, have you done any research into how to help with, the, with behavior change in uh with a sort of in food and beverage industry staff okay so this would be behavior change strategies uh within business not just consumer facing and looking at, at change of behaviors amongst staff um the the quest the comment here is that you know we we think we tend to focus behavior change strategies as something that consumers need to do um i would agree with that um you know um, but we sometimes don't think that of the first point of contact to make consumer change adoption happen, uh, which tends to be the business owners or the, or the staff themselves. So um, who would like to answer that one first? And I'm going to actually throw that to all three of you. 
I could maybe jump in, Denise. My, my answer sure. will be short. We have not done it within the Canadian context, um, but it actually did just come up recently and we're considering it, but it has been done in the international network and there are some good examples of uh, business engagement toolkits uh, that have been, I think, specific to restaurants <laughs> in the hospitality sector. Um, and you can think of takeout, um, takeout containers that have messaging on it, for example, tips for back of house staff, now, those are the types of things that have been covered in some of those examples. Great. Rosemary, any comments there? Yeah. Um, although it was stuff in flux and we'd love to see food in flux, the reason that we did that was actually primarily to support internal champions in businesses. Because what we had heard is that the way marketing was being done was going out and asking people, are you willing to pay for this green good? The numbers would come out at 20 something percent. And then CEOs and other folks would say that's not actually a strong, strong enough business case for change. Um, so we presented those findings to product innovation, the entire product innovation team at Canadian Tire, because they want to move forward with circular innovation that then helps support the uptake by their customers. And then we're getting requests to do that by other businesses. Um, because often there are, and there's a department or there's a key champion and they need alignment across the organization. So in my mind, that is what supports, um, you know, a business to be able to move forward because you need to see the rationale for doing so and you need enough internal alignment to do so. Great. Thanks, Rosemary. Angela. Yeah, the only thing I'll say on that is I think... Um, Joanne and Rosemary have covered things off very nicely, um, is that, you know, while there may not necessarily be um, uh, extensive research in that area, we can also look to other domains, because what we're talking about here is workplace organization or employee change, which has been researched quite extensively for behavioral science, often in like financial services or other sorts of large organizations. And the fact <laughs> matters when you're dealing with staff or people like young people, and they're going to be subject to the same barriers and things that our consumers are subject to. And so these principles that we've talked about are still going to be relevant. You just need to turn that lens inwards. It might be less about marketing or, or other sorts of campaigns, but how can you develop, like we talked about habit formation, and that's what often we're dealing with uh, when we're talking with staff, is how do we change habits uh, to shift them into to something we want them to do. And so um, you can apply some of these same principles, give them, you know, make it easy for them, make it the default, and, uh, you know, leverage social influence if you're trying to get champions of, you know, hey, you're a part of a community of people and you're working towards some common goal. And so I think... Um, we can kind of remember that we can leverage research about human behavior that have been applied beyond just the food and beverage sector. Okay, that's perfect. And I think that that actually gets to a couple of other questions here. Um, you know, for all three panelists, do you feel that behavior change strategies discussed are transferable to other sectors, for example? And is there a similar campaign to Love Food Hate Weights, which is focused or centered on packaging? Um, do Does anybody want to answer uh, either of those questions more thoroughly. I think, you know, Angela, you touched on it already, but is there anything else that people would like to add there? Okay. I think what I, what I would say is that I think Love Food, Food, Hate, this is a great campaign. I think it's tremendous. I think there's lots of possibility to do, you know, uh, um, love my things, hate waste, <laughs> you know, love my home, hate waste. You know, it, it's, it's, I think it's, it's sort of setting the model and setting the foundation. Um, one of the things that I, I want to point out, though, is that 
some motivation segments that we looked at may not necessarily respond. Like I think lots of people will, but what I think interesting is that there's one called rugged independence. These guys, you don't reach out to them with green messages um, at all, which is interesting. They don't listen to social media from their friends and family. And they do all kinds of, you know, great things around food, grow their own garden, buy locally, make their own meal plans, not for ecological reasons. Um, and so, and and you can't get them on social media or, you know, they're listening to their local newspaper. So um, as we do these things, I want to make sure that we, that we kind of reach the, what am I looking for? The folks that we wouldn't necessarily think are going to be responsive, but are, will because if they're doing it for motivations, you know, other than saving the planet. That's great. That's a good reminder. I'm sure at some point in my life, I would have fallen into that rugged independence camp. <laughs> okay. Related to that, maybe just quickly following up is, you know, a lot of us, we tend to focus on messaging and how can we frame and appeal to certain values. But, you know, we can also think about, you know, what's referred to as like the choice of architecture, really the environment that we're creating, which is completely agnostic to what the messaging is. And so can are we setting up the environment for consumers or whoever to be interacting with in such a way that is enabling that behavior? Is it just reducing the physical size of the plate so that they can't put as much food on it? Or even things like making garbage bags clear. You know, people can be, they have no care or you have to, uh, you know, appeal to them with it's for the environment it's just i made your plate smaller and therefore you can't put as much food on it right and so we can think about beyond just um finding the values that will connect with people to also thinking about the kind of broader physical environmental experience that they're engaging with yeah that's great and i think that that thinking uh like that i think takes us out of that behavior change domain maybe or into procurement but to what degree do how do we change our procurement policies affect behavior? So, you know, are those procurement changes a behavior change strategy? I think that that's quite interesting. Um, here's one, and this is for Angela and Joanne. What is the balance of shock or negative or loss messaging compared with positive messaging? So let's talk about the balance. You know, Angela, you mentioned an emotional balance with messaging, and you also noted that the loss language is effective with recycling. And, and Joanne, you noted that you focus on positive messaging. So could you guys just talk a little bit more about that? And then we go to Joanne and then, and then Angela. Sure, it's um, it's a great question, and I think it's a complex one. We, do, we absolutely do focus on the positive messaging for the majority of the time, but um, even my last example was for Food Waste Action Week, and I, you know, that was about climate change, and it was wasting food feeds climate change. So I think, again, it really depends on your objectives, and you, you have to think about this as the type of, um, the, the segment of the population that you want to reach with specific messaging and making sure that you're tailoring your objectives and your tactics do that. But generally, what we have found is that the positive messaging and, and not the shaming um, is really the way to start the conversation and to go from there. Great. Angela? Yeah, just to build on that, I think, and I absolutely agree, I think shame and, and sort of the finger wag is sort of definitely a way, a direction to move away from. Um, but when we talk about balance, I think and there's been a lot of very recent research looking at like kind of testing out what is that balance um and as, as joanne said it's a very complex issue it interacts with a lot of other things like 
what is the issue you're even talking about and how is it framed and there's research showing that like if you're talking about a global yeah. scale then sort of more fear appeals tend to work better than if you're talking about something quite local um but i think you know what i would say there is the, the, the only potential danger of, of really focusing solely on the positive and you know we, we're doing great you know da 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 is that people can kind of feel like oh they've got it right we, there's no sense of urgency there and so you don't necessarily have to shame them but they do need to recognize that and we see negative emotion they, they need to feel some degree of concern the that there is something that should be done I, I should be taking action and that positive element is you're concerned now but don't worry we've got a plan and this is how specifically you can do uh, what you can do to actually um, resolve that concern uh, that you're feeling so it needs it needs to be a little bit yeah. yeah so um this is a question that i think is you know you're answering it to some degree already but rosemary i'm going to bring you into this now what are the strategies of behavior change for circular food systems so let's just keep it at that that have seen the most success so maybe just give an example of a strategy where you've been like, you know what, that so nailed it. Like we, we know that when we implemented that, we saw we saw success. And, and, and you guys all gave us some success uh, case studies, but if you could give us like, what do you think was like the most successful? I know we're in dangerous territory here. Any thoughts? I mean, I mean I, I'm just thinking, I, when I look at this question, I think of just generally behavior change and which it can be applied to the circular food systems. I mean, I think what, can be very very successful are things like defaults they they're very powerful as a tool um there's always dangers in, in using any kind of interventions not dangers but considerations um you really have to think about what is the behavior you're trying to drive if it is something that requires continued engagement after the fact if you just default something into default someone into something but you need them to come back to do something else defaults by their nature are, are passive and so if you need to engage them again and again defaults can backfire if they're like well I was I didn't even know I was defaulted into it and so um so it really you have to consider what is the specific behavior you're asking them to do and what is the kind of the journey of the life course of that behavior in terms of are you going to ask them again and, and and that sort of things but default social influence I think is another one that is is generally very successful that's great. Thank you. Rosemary? Yeah, I would like to echo social influence that came across as being, you know, a factor that worked for, you know, the majority of businesses when we did the shift pro and businesses, cities and nonprofits. Um, but also just to talk about default, so too is habit formation. We have to have things in place that sort of reinforce, support, incentivize. And that may be the messaging, but that may actually be changing the offering as well. So it is the default. It's easy. Um, I also think self-efficacy is really important. I believe I can do it. And I also know that it will make a positive difference. So it almost brings in tangibility as well. Those are the ones that I've really seen uh, stand out. That's great. Joanne? I'll maybe offer a bit of a different perspective than our behavior change experts. So um, I think when thinking about circular food systems and the circular economy writ large, you know, it's really about 
where can we have the biggest impact? And I think for us, one of the myth-busting pieces over the years has been that people think that they're absolved of guilt if they compost. And, you know, this is really about a prevention-first approach and highest and best value of, and use for that food. And so I think that's something that we always keep in mind as we approach things. And even, for example, Metro Vancouver did evolve its food scraps um, campaign over time because we wanted to make sure there was no conflicting messaging. So instead of saying food isn't garbage, we said food isn't garbage and food scraps aren't garbage, pardon me. And we changed the imagery so there was no avoidable food um, that was seen in those images. It really was the scraps. So I, again, I think this is about hierarchy of messaging and impact that's really important as we move forward. Okay, that's great. So we are, you know, we've got four minutes. So I'm going to ask each of you to kind of um, respond to my next question but like give it a short, short, short response. For anybody um, who's working at any point in the, in the food system supply chain, um, where would, if, and they want to do behavior change work, what is their first step? How would you direct them? What's their first step? I feel like that's kind of a good way to end yeah. this webinar. Angela, and then Rosemary, and then Joanne. <laughs> yeah, I mean, probably the first step I would say, and I think this is the big, kind of aha moment that people have is we talk about like food waste reduction or these sorts of things and we think we're trying to drive food waste reduction but our first step is food waste reduction is an outcome it is not a behavior and so the first thing that you need to do is okay what is your outcome and then take a step back and go what are the behaviors that are required by whoever consumers investors what have you what are the behaviors necessary to get to that outcome because then you can understand all right well what, what are the barriers then to those specific behaviors, because I think we tend to think quite at a very ambitious level. We're trying to reduce food waste or, or whatever our outcome is. And so I think that is the number one first step because it allows you to be much more targeted and much more um, uh, intentional about the kinds of strategies you're developing because you understand then the nature of the behavior and the potential barriers you have to overcome. Okay, that's great. Thank you, Rosemary. Oh, you're on mute. Um, uh, yeah, behavior change. Um, I would jump in and, and take a look at the lighter living motivations for BC, recognize that people have different motivations for the thing that you, the behavior change that you would like to see, and it might be different from yours. Often we think about ourselves, right? And then, and then we think about messages that would motivate us. Uh, you may be trying to motivate people with very different reasons for doing so. And then also the shift factors that Angela mentioned you know, we've put them in what we hope is really kind of user-friendly, straightforward language in the Shifting Consumer Behavior Report. So just dig into that and then and then reach out to Angela or reach out to myself if you need, uh, need support and guidance. Fabulous. Thank you. Joanne? I'll maybe build on that point. I think, um, you know, we are reimagining how our goods and services are being delivered into the marketplace, our role in this shifting economy. And I think, you know, reach out and have conversations and look for collaborators, because you might find that other people are struggling with the same um, issues and are wanting to do something differently. So I think we really need to think about that as we move forward is to just have those conversations and to look for collaborators. You might find it in some unusual places. That's great, thank you. So that, that pretty much brings us to time today. 
Uh, this webinar is being recorded and it will be posted on the National Zero Waste Council uh, website so people can go back and, and uh, check in some of the check some of the resources that are listed in the chat and, and uh, hear the presentations again. Um, there were a number of questions we didn't get to in the chat. Apologies, uh, I think it's an indication of just how much interest there is in this work. Um, so maybe we need to do a follow-up session, but um, more on that uh, to come. On behalf of the National Zero Waste Council and Metro Vancouver, I just would uh, like to say a huge thank you to Angela, Rosemary, and Joanne for giving your time today um, and sharing your thoughts with us. A big thank you to all of you who uh, joined us early in the morning or or around lunchtime, I guess, if you're if you're Ontario and, and east of Ontario. Um, that concludes our webinar today. Thank you very much. what is within a municipality's control and responsibility is extremely important in effectively pushing for ambitious climate action and also minimizing your own frustrations. Um, <laughs> climate inaction and action impacts us all, um, but certain things are outside of municipal control and that's when we have to know when to go to a different level of government to push for action there. The second thing I wanted to highlight is that elections are a key aspect of taking climate action, but it definitely doesn't end there. This section also highlights um, many ways in which we can infiltrate and take action at the municipal level, no matter the time of year. So this diagram um, shows a simplified breakdown of how policy decisions are made at the municipal level in so-called Canada, and ways you might intervene. No matter the time of year, there are so many ways to um, help work for change in your community. And some of them are listed here, like public consultations and surveys, attending open houses or hearings, or asking to speak at a council meeting. Section two is all about finding and mobilizing supporters. As said by one of the youth committee members who contributed to this manual's creation, they wish that they had figured out this part of the process earlier. So hopefully the manual can help in this regard. So when trying to catalyze change, it's really important to remember that you're not alone. But you also might need to put some time into building a supportive community and momentum around your ideas. Section two of the manual provides a step-by-step -step process of figuring out who is already on your side, who are the key players and stakeholders, and how to pitch your idea in hopes of maybe gaining some new people on your team. Another youth committee member reminds us that we might not all see eye to eye, but there are ways we can find to cooperate. And the diagram, uh, should be on your left, <laughs> illustrates how an ecosystem of actors might work together to bring about change. Uh, we invite you to leverage the network around you um, because we are more impactful and resilient in our efforts when we do them together. Section three, taking it to council. So the key ideas presented in section three of the infiltration manual are the ins and outs of really doing 
the work, I guess. Um, how to access meetings, how to make presentations, how to deal with pushback, and tips on getting clear commitments from decision makers. As we see uh, in these quotes, like it's important to show up, whether that is writing a letter or a petition or showing up to a council, meet council meeting. Not many people do, and it's very impactful on decision makers. As articulated by these contributing council members, showing up with a clear and actionable ask is key to catalyzing change. The last section is section four, knowing your worth. In the field of climate advocacy, it is normal to alternate between feeling hopeful and pessimistic about the future. Always having to push for action gets really tiring and it can be a slow and long process. Take time to rest. You're in this for the long haul and taking breaks can help improve the outcome of your initiative. So this section really provides tips on self-care and also mitigating tokens. So part of knowing your worth and the worth of others is knowing how to recognize, address, and mitigate tokenism. For instance, youth are often included in the consultancy or decision-making process to hold a symbolic or superficial role in the name of incorporating different voices. This is tokenism and is found in like many different ways in policy and politics. In the infiltration manual, the, this section provides a robust list of reflection questions to ask yourself and the people you are working with to help identify tokenism and address it. Lastly, haven't mentioned it yet, but at the end of the manual, there is uh, an appendix where we have provided a bunch of templates to try and make your advocacy easier. So this is an example of two templates um, to support your efforts. With the reminder, we don't always have to start from scratch. Okay, so that was the four sections of the manual um, wrapped up, summarized for you. I hope it made you curious and you'll go check it out. Um, but before I pass it off to the panelists, uh, my team at Youth Climate Lab, we wanted to share some ideas of some potential pathways to action for you. Um, and again, the panelists will probably have so many other ideas as well, so I'm excited to hear what they have to say. Some examples are, uh, from Youth Climate Lab are join or start a committee on climate change or a youth committee, advocate for your municipality to declare climate emergency if they have yet to do so, advocate for your municipality to create a climate change action plan if they have yet to do so, or you can also critique and ask for further action on an existing one. And when doing so, um, we think at Youth Climate Lab, it's important to make sure that these action plans are in alignment with UNDRIP, so the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Vancouver is in the process of implementing UNDRIP at the municipal level, so it is possible if folks um, push back on that. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, the calls to action, specifically numbers 43, 47, 57, 75, and 77 directly ask 
for municipal action. We also look for alignment with climate change frameworks such as the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty and the inclusion of emergency response plans such as for extreme weather. Lastly, there are so many climate action networks and coalitions that your counselor or municipality could join to share learnings, get inspired, and push for stronger actions together. If your counselor or municipality is not already a member of these coalitions or networks, such as Climate Caucus, C40, and ECLEI Canada, maybe suggest they join. Again, I'm sure the panelists will share so many more ideas, but these are just some potential jumping off points. slides got jumbled. Thank you. Thank you so much, Siobhan. Did you want to say something else? Or? Um, I was just going to put the link to where I could, where you can find the infiltration manual, but I think my slides went a little funny, but okay. I'll just put it in the chat. Yeah, that's Thank great. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, Siobhan. That was uh, very great to see. Um, and it's a useful toolkit, a manual for anybody who wants to move forward with uh, climate implementation initiatives or strategies or declaring an emergency uh, in their community and, and getting um, city council, stakeholders, administration, and uh, volunteers, everyday residents uh, to take action in their community uh, to make a more equitable and, and better cities and communities and municipalities and towns to live in. So thank you so much. Uh, my name is Cameron. I, uh, I work with the David Suzuki Foundation, taking a triangulated approach to move forward uh, climate action in municipalities. As Siobhan said, 50% of uh, our emissions uh, fall within jurisdiction of municipalities. Uh, so it's a great way to mobilize people uh, and move forward, often taking that triangulated approach, working with council, working with various stakeholders and administration, and then, of course, uh, everyday residents. Uh, um, so, welcome today. Uh, I'm I'm coming. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I live, work, and play, and and I'm standing on Lekwungen territory. Uh, that of the Songhees and Esquimalt people. I work in the cities of Vancouver, Edmonton, Regina, and Calgary. And we've got some wonderful um, panelists today who are going to bless us with uh, their expertise. Uh, and uh, I'd like to introduce them now. First, we'll start with. Uh, Councillor Shannon Zakidniak from the city of Regina. And please turn on your, uh, yeah, thank you, Shannon. Um, Shannon serving her first term as uh, Ward 8 city councillor. Uh, in that role, she is the co-chair of the community advisory group for the city's energy and sustainability framework. Um, she has also recently been appointed uh, to a three-year term on the Federation of Canadian Municipalities Green Municipal Fund Council. Shannon is a passionate community builder whose work has included management roles with several organizations. She has a bachelor's degree in environmental studies and a bachelor's in journalism. She has served on the board of several nonprofits and is the founder of Regina's award-winning Enviro Collective and co-founder of Food Regina. Shannon and her husband, John, have two sons, Wiley and Ivan, and a dog named Penny. Thank you for being here today, Shannon. We're also, uh, it's also great to have 
Verona, Veronica Boliski, the executive director and co-founder of City Hive. Veronica is a civic engagement innovator and climate action strategist and is the executive director and co-founder of City Hive, a youth-centered nonprofit on a mission to transform the way young people are engaged in decision-making and shaping their cities. A lifelong Vancouverite, she is passionate about creating more climate-resilient, just cities and amplifying the meaningful engagement of residents, particularly youth, in addressing urban challenges. Veronica's experience includes working in sustainability education, climate action engagement, environmental policy, and participatory design. She was awarded as a top 25 under 25 environmentalist in Canada in 2015, and has delivered a TEDx talk on urban sustainability and was a social innovation fellow at Radius SFU. Veronica is currently a commissioner on the Vancouver City Planning Commission and board member of City Studio Vancouver. Veronica is an outdoor enthusiast and loves gathering food and can often be found zipping around on her bike. Welcome, Veronica. And uh, we were to have uh, Tara Day, uh, the regional organizer for Atlantic Canada uh, for uh, Climate Reality, the Community Club Climate, Climate Initiative. Unfortunately, uh, Tara uh, cannot join us from Jibakta territory today uh, to talk about uh, Halifax, but we are very uh, blessed to have Ashley Anthony here today uh, to talk about what the Climate Hub is doing and what is going on in Halifax. Uh, Ashley is the Regional in Engagement Coordinator for the Climate Reality, Reality Project in Atlantic Canada. She's a journal journalist originally from Toronto and has traveled across the country working with Indigenous nonprofit radio communications organizations. She lived north of 60, was driven coast to coast, and one day dreams of making the coast to coast to coast. Her passion for environmentalism and experience has provoked her to engage working in climate action full time. She is the regional engagement coordinator for the Atlantic region with Climate Reality Project Canada and a member engagement specialist with Green Economy Canada. Welcome, Ashley. So what we'll do here is we have uh, three uh, questions. Uh, we'll each uh, panelist will have three minutes each to, to answer that question. Uh, and then we'll move on to uh, a second question and a third question and uh, I'll facilitate that respectively. And after that, uh, we'll open the floor to uh, questions uh, from the audience. So the first question, and we'll start with you, uh, Shannon, and you have three minutes to answer is, what projects, initiatives have you and you, your organization worked on to help the community members push for ambitious climate action at the local government level? Okay, thank you. Um, so I actually have um, experience, like as mentioned in my bio briefly, with both being a counselor, which is just since 2020, and then prior to that, um, being a group who advocated, being part of a group who advocated to council for ambitious climate action. So in terms of initiatives that I've worked on, um, prior to running for council, uh, the city had city council had approved the creation of an energy and sustainability framework to guide Regina's emissions to net zero by 2050. And so I was part of the, the organization that I had founded, Enviro Collective, was pushing for an equitable lens in the creation of our energy and 
sustainability framework. And we were actually supported by the David Suzuki Foundation in this work. Um, so this was successful, um, meaning that when um, the, the framework was created, prioritizing an equity lens, um, and after joining council, I had the ability to help lead that work um, as co-chair of the community advisory group. So the community advisory group was to ensure that we had diverse voices and focused on this equity lens in the creation of the plan. What will now be important is even more important than creating a plan with an equity lens is implementing that plan with an equity lens. I hope to continue in uh, as a co-chair of the community advisory group who can help ensure that we continue to prioritize this equity lens. Um, and I guess I'll also mention, um, just looking at my notes here, um, another thing uh, since joining council is that I've been working with community members, community groups to advocate and who've been advocating for increased fare-free transit in our community. And so far, there has been um, a change from fare-free five and under. Has It's now been increased to 13 and under, uh, ages 13 and under, ride for free um, on Regina Transit. And this is due to the work from the community prioritizing that message. And I have committed to continuing to work with the community to advance fare-free transit further here in Regina. So that's just a quick overview of some of the campaigns that I've been involved in, both as a community advocate, activist, and also as a counselor. And in 15 seconds, Shannon, could you maybe comment on the length of time that it's taken you to get uh, this far from initiating the, the campaign to, to make Regina renewable to the point where you now have a strategy? Yeah. Well, there was first a motion passed, I think it was actually goes back to 2018 when there was first direction from city council. So definitely prior to my time to um, create a framework. And then there was a bit of back and forth of like, well, are we just doing a framework for specifically the city of Regina operations or the whole community? There were several motions, there was changeover in council. Um, and then once it was 2020 that there was finally an agreement right before this election of what kind of framework needed to be completed. And it was just this year, 2022, where we finally approved the, the framework. So it does, it takes a while, unfortunately. Yeah, a long time, yeah. We thanks, don't have Shen. the luxury of that time. Yeah, thanks, Shen. Veronica, what uh, projects and initiatives have you been uh, involved with to push uh, ambitious climate action at a local level? Mm, yeah, um, and yeah, first, thanks for having me. And, and huge thanks to everyone for being here. I think especially a lot of elected who just been elected in the last few months in BC and Ontario. Um, welcome if you're a new elected, and I'm really glad that um, everyone who, who's able to join us here today. Um, and yeah, maybe maybe starting a little bit with what City Hive is and and the um, gaps that we're aiming to serve. So City Hive, we're a nonprofit based in Metro Vancouver, and our mission is to transform the way that young people are engaged in decision making and civic processes in shaping their cities. And we really started um, because we saw that for any decision around climate action, around affordability, around housing, transportation, you name it, when decisions were being made, usually there weren't opportunities for youth input or youth weren't at the decision-making table. Um, and we saw that as a huge missed opportunity, not only for 
youth, but also for the decisions that were being made and for our cities. And we wanted to imagine what would it look like if we actually made our decisions around our climate future, around affordability, around all these issues with the youth at the table. Um, and so we started about six years ago um, and, uh, and there are many different ways that we try to do this, but at the core, what uh, we really try to um, work on is acknowledging that you can't just put the onus on youth to show up and that we uh, you know, can build the knowledge, skills and agency of youth, but at the same time, we actually need to be transforming the way that local governments engage with their communities and with youth. So City Habit does a little bit of both. We do a lot of civic education, building the knowledge and the skills and the confidence of young people to engage. Um, but we also do a lot of work directly with local governments um, uh, to help them transform the way that they engage uh, their residents and youth. Um, so there's maybe two or three projects that I would like to highlight that are most related to climate action. Um, and the first is our lab program. So we run a lab program called the Youth Climate Innovation Lab formerly called the EnviroLab. Um, and the real aim is to give, to provide a container. Um, it's about three to four months long. It's a cohort-based program um, where youth uh, learn a little bit about climate action. They learn about local civics. So what the heck does local government even do? What does my parent council do? Um, what's within the jurisdiction and decision-making capacity of local government? Um, and then they're paired with community partners to work on climate action projects. And some of the community partners are local governments who are looking for youth input on policies or on engagement projects. Others are community groups that have a specific problem statement that they're looking for youth input on. Um, and then youth create those projects. Um, and the real aim is to make sure that we're providing a space for youth who aren't necessarily already engaged in climate issues, but who are feeling climate anxious and want to bring their lens, whether it's an arts-based lens, whether it's uh, other passions that they have into the climate space. Um, and, and the other real aim is to make sure that local governments, community organizations have direct pathways to meaningfully be engaging youth. Um, and the other program that I'll highlight um, is the Youth Civic and Climate Leadership Program. Um, and we uh, just started running that this year. Um, acknowledging that there's a really huge gap in um, climate programs where a lot of youth who are feeling climate anxious but maybe wouldn't put their hand up for a leadership-based program or for a climate program um, to have more low barrier ways to both learn about climate action and to be able to really focus on what their skills are and what their interests are and to be able to uh, create some sort of civic action project. So all youth who go through that program either get to write a letter to council, create recommendations to council, give input on some form of, um, of climate policy that's currently either being implemented or considered. Um, yeah, maybe I'll, I'll pause there. It's probably well over three minutes. <laughs> no, that's great. Thank you. Wonderful work. Thank you, Veronica. Ashley, uh, what initiatives is your organization working on to push ambitious climate action at a local level? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. And happy to be here stepping in last minute. So uh, I apologize if I'm a little underprepared and if there's a bit of commotion in the back here because we have children and it's dinner time and things happen. But either way, um, let's start with a little bit what what Climate Reality Project does. Essentially, we have a number of programs, but we are a peer-to-peer -peer education nonprofit. Um, essentially, with our Community Climate Hubs program, what that is, is we look to help an activated group of citizens 
be more meaningful in their interactions with the municipality. So we see that there is a gap happening between ENGOs, the municipality, the stakeholders, and actual citizens that live in the city. And so we try to equip these citizens with the capacity and the skills to be able to meaningfully engage with their elected officials and create lasting impacts. Um, essentially, what we do is we create community climate hubs, and these hubs are these groups of activated citizens. And some of the projects that we've been able to work on are include the Halifax project. I'm going to drop a link into the chat right now. Um, Halifax is a Clean 50 top project, and essentially it is the city of Halifax ambitious climate change plan. Um, the role that Climate Reality Project played in ushering in this plan was that we helped with the stakeholder engagement. So the Community Climate Hub was one of the key players to help ensure that community voices were heard to move forward this project. <clears throat> Currently in Halifax, they actually have a 3% tax that helps fund Halifax actually the very first time that a municipal government has incorporated a tax levy directed essentially at climate adaptation mitigation and a climate adaption plan which is incredible to see um also here in atlantic coast we just launched the saint john community climate hub which is what we're trying to do here in my home community so i get to participate a little more meaningfully in that and we're trying to keep our elected officials accountable and ensure that again we're missing that uh, or we're filling that missing gap uh, other work that's been done within the community climate hubs is the implementation and financing of climate projects like the one i just talked also the Calgary Climate Hub has also had some monumentous strides in working with their elected government to uh, push forward their climate plan as well. And um, community climate hubs also work with their municipalities by signing up for working groups, um, and that that helps direct stakeholder engagement as well. And we see the community climate hubs in Kingston operating in, in ways like this, or even working directly with their counselors to help train them with new climate tools or resources, help providing benchmarking. And so we see uh, the Greater Victoria Climate Hub doing this. So there's lots of action going on and essentially each one of these community climate hubs um, works forward based on their community priorities to prop up the gaps that they're facing with in their community and then we work across Canada as a network to help bolster with uh, benchmarking and help prepare well help with those soft skills as well because a lot of these activated citizens don't really have the uh, capacity to meaningfully engage with their municipal government so we teach them how to bring these these um, requests forward to their municipal council and we teach them how to launch these engagement projects and initiatives within their cities and how to network and create people and create allies within their city to move these projects along. Thanks Ashley. So we're going to move on to our second question and this time I'll start with Veronica. Uh, what are some tips you could share with individuals or groups that want to effectively work with their local government to push for ambitious climate action? Yeah, I think the, the Youth Infiltration Manual is such a great um, resource. Um, I got to be a part of the youth committee that Youth Climate Lab and Shuang's team pulled together to provide content for the for the Infiltration Manual and reviewed it. And in some of those conversations, we had really 
powerful reflections for all of us, for all of the, the young people who contributed what some of the big um, lessons that we had that we wish we would have known um, sooner and we were able to put that in there, but that caused a lot of reflection for what some of those things were that we found effective for working with local government. Um, and I think the big one, which is uh, in the infiltration manual for me, is being strategic and understanding what the levers of local government are um, and then pairing that with what either my own individual assets are or what with my organization's assets are. Um, and so for everyone to ask that of themselves and of their organizations too. Um, so I think understanding who your allies are, having a bit of a power map and understanding who is actually responsible for different decisions. Should you be approaching staff? Should you be approaching counselor? Are there specific counselors? Um, mapping and, and exploring whether it's most effective to show up right to city council, whether you can write an email to a counselor and sit down with them one-on-one, -on -one, um, whether it's writing a letter. Um, and then I think also understanding what it is that you, uh, what it is that you're pushing for and what the, uh, what the appropriate levers are. Um, so does city council need to be pushed to have more ambitious targets? Do they even have a climate emergency action plan? Are they struggling with implementation? And is the thing that they really need more voices to be showing up to council meetings where there's decisions being made around implementation around perhaps more controversial plans? Um, and so I think really getting a lay of the land of who the players are and what the levers are. And I think a lot of that actually starts with civic education and something that we really find in our work is that even youth who are really passionate and who are really artic articulate and knowledge knowledgeable about climate issues might not understand how civic processes work. Um, so I think a really big step that, that individuals or groups can take is doing a little bit of civic education. Um, and again, the infiltration manual is a really great resource um, and, and understanding how decisions are made. Um, so I think that's one big one. And I think another big tip for working effectively with local governments um, to, to push for ambitious climate action is to actually look beyond just climate action motions or policies. Um, I think it uh, really depends on uh, where your local government is at and where your municipality is at. Um, but I think where uh, a lot of work needs to be done is in making sure that climate action is infused and embedded in every other plan, whether it's a specific area plan, whether it's a housing strategy, a transportation strategy, whatever it is, is making sure that climate action commitments are listed there. And I think that what we've seen um, in particular in Metro Vancouver, what I've seen in Vancouver, is that when you look at who shows up to, to city council meetings for um, non-climate climate action explicit motions, you tend to get a lot more opposition because a lot of climate action advocates don't show up because we don't see the words climate action in those motions. So I think, uh, yeah, my big, my big tip is to look beyond just climate action explicit motions. Thanks, Veronica. Ashley, some tips that you might have? Well, first is not to go after Veronica, because how do you follow up with something that's so exactly on the spot like that? And the only thing I can do is just expand that out. So she's more focusing on looking at who those key players are within the city and those dynamics. But 
she's absolutely right when she says that climate action is an intersectional issue and you need to broaden your horizons and show up for all of the things that are intersectional. So, you know, food security, <clears throat> um, homelessness, the housing crisis, all of this impacts what we're doing, even when it comes down to retrofits and how we're moving forward with, you know, the processes within our cities, how buildings are built, all of that, it all matters. And when you're looking at really creating actionable groups, what you need to do is you need to identify that spectrum of allies, just as she was saying, but look outside as well. So there's also always going to be other players in the field that are working on other issues that are intersectional with your own. So reach out to those people who are working on homelessness issues. Reach out to those people who are working on community gardens. Reach out to all those intersectional issues because you all have a role to play and it all works together. And of course, the more the more volume and the more people that are, are gathered, the more impact that you're going to make in the long run. So it's great to work alongside counselors as well who are interested in pushing this climate action forward, building that actual relationship because they can give you inside information on what the council is already working on and you wouldn't need to pursue those other avenues of government, right? Um, so issues that need more public support before council enacts them and passes them, you'll know that so you can help rally essentially these stakeholders, these citizens to help amplify their voices. <clears throat> this has been done actually in a, a few hubs here. We don't want to technically throw them out because sometimes we have um, very discreet relationships with our counselors based on our social systems. So we don't want to throw anybody under the bus or name any names, but building those um, those dynamic and, and valuable relationships will help push everything forward because that information is very essential. And it's also helpful to identify the allies that are actually not natural allies. So meet to lobby them to be more symp sympathetic to your cause. If they're fighting for something, they're more willing to actually hear what you're saying, especially if you're leading with value-driven messages first, like this is how I feel because of this. This is the anxiety that I'm feeling because of this. People tend to resonate with you as a human more when you're being more humanistic, right? And you can help lessen the resistance to progressive climate action when it comes to the table at the council, but it also establishes relationships with people who may or may not be, you know, they might not form the majority at the next election. This practice has proved fruitful for hubs in Montreal. It's important to have, even if they're not the controlling group, people on both sides of the spectrum to help you move your progress along. Thanks, Ashley. Um, Councillor Zakindiak bit from the other side of the coin. Tips for pushing you to take more ambitious climate action. What, what are some tips? Okay, um, and um, do you want to note that um, like everything that folks have said is great and including the infiltration manual has some excellent tips in there. Um, when I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about the importance of relationships and that was already mentioned um, in as we were talking about the infiltration manual. Um, I really suggest getting to know counsel. Um, you could certainly start with your counselor, um, but in order to understand who um, prioritizes the environment or climate action, you could even start just by searching for folks like on Google to understand, like to get a sense of their bi biographies, why they joined council, what they've worked on in the past. 
some cities actually have specific areas of specialization. We don't in Regina, but portfolios. And so that would make it really easy if you do have, uh, if you live in a city where somebody has a climate or environment portfolio. Um, and so, yeah, I just really suggest, I, I want to say that uh, it's really important to uh, find an ally that you can work with on council who um, shares your values or who you think is most likely to want to take the lead on this uh, because they'll be happy, I would think, this is certainly, um, I'm happy to work with the community in, in terms of advancing um, priorities in relation to climate um, because we can complement each other's work and be more successful by working together. Um, and I'd also suggest that um, in terms, you could also, there's, by contacting whatever the general contact for your municipality to find out what's currently going on if you don't know or you need to know in, in relation to climate in your municipality. So generally there's like a standard contact form um, or a number you can call and you just want to know what is administration currently doing. There may be roles, there may be advisory uh, groups that you can be involved in. Um, so also just getting a sense of what's actually either happened happened in the past, happening now, and plan for the future to help inform your work. Um, I don't think I have anything else to add, just the these relationships um, are so crucial um, with whether it's council or administration and working um, and joining forces with other folks in order to be able to accomplish more. Okay. Thank you, Councillor Zakidiak. Um, yeah, and I just want to let everybody know uh, we will be after this question. We will be uh, taking questions from the audience, so please put those in the Q and A, and we'll get to them afterwards. Um, yeah, a lot of talk of intersection intersectionality there. Uh, it's so important as we we have an opportunity to build better, just, more equal cities uh, through this transition. Uh, and I'm seeing some sort of talk of this in the chat room too. So uh, I'll start with you, Ashley. How can we ensure that community engagement for local climate action is accessible and that there is space where everyone can be heard and included? <clears throat> well, this is something that we're continuously working on because the world develops every day and every day there's a new channel for somebody to get some type of feedback through, right? <clears throat> but feedback loops are important and it's the diversity and effectiveness of these feedback loops that ensure that people are heard and that their voices are taken into account. But it's also the receptiveness of your city council, your city, the city makeup and the way that they're hearing the feedback. So it works both ways. Um, in my experience, like cities need to show up and create more avenues for feedback that are meaningful and accessible for people. Um, even like within my own city, there are a number of, you know, times where the city will roll something out and everybody like, well, we didn't hear about that. Or there was one article and nobody said when that was happening. Or I have, you know, some comments on how this is actually done, but some people might hear that as bickering in the background. I hear that as opportunity for meaningful stakeholder engagement. Like if these people are gonna come out, to the, out of the woodwork to actually voice their opinions, it's important for us to have some way to capture that. My background's in communications, so it's very important for me to try to ensure that we're creating these opportunities for people in various ways. Some people like online submissions of, you know, surveys. 
some people like opportunities where we have town halls where we actually sit here and discuss that's not so formal of, of a council meeting or that's not produced and supported by businesses directly right some people want community events where their counselors are showing up where we can have ad hoc very personal conversations but the problem is is that there and a lot of this is i'm going to chalk up to the pandemic of late there is a lot of opportunity now to come out of this and have more meaningful interaction with the people that live in our city and create cities that have economies that benefit the people that live within the cities right local economies benefiting local communities but um <clears throat> it's also important that um, they outreach as widely as available and as possible about ways that uh, in which their sessions or their involvement opportunities can accommodate as many people that would be interested so this means thinking about hours of the day or, you know, during work hours, if there's childcare or food available for the meetings that they're hosting, like how can people actually truly meaningfully engage if they can't um, get out of their own lives to think about how they can come forward? Like there's a Maslow's, you know, hierarchy of needs. And if we're just sitting here floundering at the bottom of that pyramid, worrying about our basic necessities, like it's hard for us to think about how we could change the whole system. And that's what needs to happen is a shift in system and perspectives and better enriched community outreach that is really incorporating all of these different voices through different avenues and channels will help create a more well, at least <laughs> a more alive and vibrant city when it comes to decision making. It's not just going to be cricket at the at the <laughs> the community or the the council meetings. Like we need more opportunity to have those meaningful engagements. You know, not just tick the box for what matters. Yeah, thanks, Ashley. A lot of food for thought there, uh, Councillor the Kidniak. Um, how can we ensure that space that there is space and, and everyone is included? So here in Regina, how that happened was a strong um, community push for an equity lens, as I was discussing earlier. And this was throughout um, the entire process. Um, so this was when there was first a motion to create a framework. And then um, there has been a sustained push for this equity lens, um, not and, and in all aspects of um, the process thus far, every time that there was the opportunity for community engagement, the community was clear about the importance of that equity lens. And this also led to council embedding the need for an equity lens within the motion for a framework itself. So just that continued focus on it and not um and just very and also need to be specific what does that mean what is an equity lens we need to ensure that essentially uh we develop a framework that's going to improve people's lives all people's lives all residents in regina need to benefit from the implementation of our framework and so it needs to ensure that it's taking care of marginalized community members and not increasing the the any the, like inequity in our community and um, it's also important that not only does it have an equity lens, but that we have diverse um, representation from community members as we are creating the plan. Uh, the folks who we are seeking to uh, target with an equity lens, need to we need to make sure that they're partners in the 
process of coming up with our framework of coming up with policy so that they have an important place at the table as we are doing this work. Um, one thing I forgot to mention earlier that I just do want to go back to um, is that um, whenever I was talking about building relationships with uh, counselors and with your council, um, in my experience, um, and also talking to other elected uh, counselors in municipalities across Canada, oftentimes um, counselors are, have quite a bit like of demands um, that are coming at them all at the same time. And so if you reach out to a counselor and you don't hear back, it doesn't necessarily mean that they don't want to talk to you. I say uh, be persistent. If you reached out via email and it didn't work, you could find their phone number and call them or text them. Um, we are often in Regina. We're under-resourced. We're trying to, um, many folks are have a, a job on top of being a counselor. It's the hours are increasing in terms of the demands of account on counselors. It's getting closer to full-time work, but it's still paid and considered a part-time job. So if you don't hear back from a counselor, it's, could very likely be unintentional. Keep trying. Don't assume that that means that they don't want to talk to you. Be persistent. Many counselors will appreciate that follow-up. Thank you, Shannon. Veronica, how do we create space so that everyone's included? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I can really uh, just echo and say ditto to so much of what Ashley and Shannon um, just shared. And building on that, I think the first big thing that comes to mind is that we can't put the onus on community to show up and in particular local governments can't put the onus on community to show up um, all because we don't see community members uh show up or certain community members show up doesn't mean that they don't have anything to say or they're not interested i think um so many of our systems and processes of engagement um have historically been and continue to systemically exclude certain demographics and identities of people um, and I think we're really seeing that shift and I think really seeing a lot of intention in, in that shifting too from local governments. Um, and there's no shortage of resources on what inclusive and equitable, equitable engagement um, looks like. And I think Ashley gave some really great examples uh, that are really specific around everything from timing to the resources that are provided um, to language that we use in engagement. Um, and so I think that there's a lot that needs to change in how governments engage um, with people. I think one of those ways too is really, um, you know, relationships go two, two ways. And I think in the previous question, we talked about how community organizers, how community organizations and, and residents can build relationships with, uh, with their local government. And then the same goes the other way around where local governments also need to be building relationships um, and working in relation with community organizations especially ones that work with specific communities or demographics of folks. Um, and so that when engagement does need to happen or there is an opportunity to either have input or to co-create, that there are partners to go to who already have that trust built, uh, built in. Um, and that way you can also meet people where they're at. Um, and I think a big part of uh, engagement around climate action um, as well really needs to take into account that Everyone, everyone is in such a different place of their understanding of climate action. Um, and so a lot of the language that's used needs to be really accessible. And also maybe someone can't articulate what their 
um, dreams or desires aren't specifically uh, around climate action, but maybe they can say what they need in terms of how they would like to feel and how they get around the city, or um, they can articulate their needs in a different way. So I think uh, making sure that that language is really accessible and that the way that folks are being engaged is really accessible. Um, because I do, I do really believe that co-creation can happen with folks who are at every place on the spectrum in terms of their understanding of climate action. Um, and it actually, not only is it a nice to have, but it's a need to have to be co-creating climate solutions with folks who also uh, don't maybe necessarily aren't the loudest climate advocates, um, but have other needs that we need to be building in when we build in solutions. Um, and I think the last thing that I'll say around community engagement um, on local climate action is that for us at City Hive, two of the biggest barriers that we hear from youth, regardless of whether they're um, active climate advocates um, or whether they're earlier on in their journey of, um, of being civically engaged, um, is that they have uh, the, the two biggest barriers that they experience are that they either feel like they aren't experts um, and that they what they have to say, um, they don't they maybe aren't experts enough to be able to engage. Um, and the second is that they think that them engaging won't actually change anything or won't make an impact. So I think it's really important for us, you know, this is a big, this is a lot of undoing and it's a lot of recreating of our, all of our engagement processes. But I think on a really tactical level, I think in engagement processes, we can really make sure that folks feel like their own lived experience is enough for them to engage. They don't need to be climate scientists to show up and say how they feel about the climate emergency. Um, and also them understanding what those feedback loops are so that when they do engage, they understand um, how their input was or wasn't heard or what some of the next steps are. Um, and that uh, youth say is one thing that will really encourage them to continue to engage is if they actually understand how their previous times engaging um, did or didn't influence the process. Yeah, thanks, Veronica. Uh, I'll just add to like, coming to the table and listening, I think, uh, you know, coming from an ENGO, uh, we have to uh, think differently uh, coming to the table often. Uh, Regina is a good example. Uh, Fair Free Transit is not necessarily the most, the, the initiative that's going to re reduce emissions most quickly, but it's the initiative that we heard right through dialogue uh, that women in transition wanted, that new residents to Regina wanted, that youth needed to get to school and get to their work, right? So like letting those communities identify what the solutions are is a good step forward. And I also think on resources, it's a really important issue. Um, you know, uh, having voices heard um, it requires time, money, and capacity often. Uh, and one thing I see uh, through my colleague Divya working in Brampton and through her Common Ground project or, or through Exxon Dialogues that uh, I know Iron and Earth will be holding in Edmonton is, is, is providing resources for people to attend uh, and ensure that their voices are heard uh, so that they're at the table. Um, I'm going to go to some questions uh, from the room. We have lots. Thank you. And, and keep them coming. Uh, I'll try and synopsize maybe uh, two into one, uh, Lori and Kimia's uh, question. And I think it has a lot to do with sort of like, what's the next step? We've had climate emergencies, declarations, what you might to guide us towards those strategies and those plans. Uh, some cities are, are still creating those plans, but what's the next step? Uh, in regards to implementation. Um, how can we move forward with those plans uh, as 
people organizing on the ground at, at, and working with city council. Uh, I know, for example, in Regina, Shannon, budget's an issue, right? So could you speak to that first, Shannon, and then I'll go to Veronica and Ashley. Yeah, um, sure, thank you. I think that um, in terms of what's the next step, um, it's, it'll be different in every community. So um, I think this is where it's important to have a, a good sense of what's going on in your community right now or, or not. Um, and also, so who's um, been uh, leading that work so far? So um, I think this specific question was talking about there already is a climate declaration and an action plan, but not necessarily um, moving forward. Who's been part of driving that policy and that change so far and getting an understanding from them what they've done um, and what they plan to continue doing. And um, I would say talking to them um, to uh, as an initial step to see how you can support their work. Um, so, you know, um, I think the question also mentioned, you know, is it meeting with every counselor? Not necessarily. Start with who's been doing the work so far and see how you can help support their group. Uh, sorry, their work. And then there would be potentially um, community groups as well that you could just, um, if they've already been involved in helping to advance this group, this work, then you could get uh, engaged with those groups and find out um, how you can help. Um, you know, there's always an option, if not, that um, you can, um, so you do this work on your own, you can ha um, encourage others to join you if needed, um, once you figure out the, the appropriate path. Cameron mentioned the budget, that's a key time. Um, you know, if you've got a plan, it's not developing. What you need is some resources set aside in the budget. Um, now, uh, different cities develop their budgets at different times. Ours is coming up in December. Um, the best time to start work on uh, on getting more out of a budget is not like come just at that budget meeting. Like it'll it takes some time, resources, and effort to truly get organized for the budget. So, um, especially like if you have a counselor who. Um, administration and counselor who's already doing this work then you can complement their efforts but if you are really on your own or a community group if you're on your own trying to figure out how to insert more into the budget in relation to climate it's going to take several months so just knowing that you need to get started with that work early um, and it does take time um, but um, I think resources like the the infiltration manual would probably be useful if you're starting from scratch in your municipality to try and figure out like how to get meaningfully involved. So I don't know if that's helpful for that specific situation. Yeah, thanks, Shannon. I think goals, strategy, tactics, that's sort of like go down like that, setting your goals and then the strategy for the months and the year ahead to get there and the tactics you want to implement is just so important. And that. That applies not just to strat, uh, emergency declarations and strategies, but what are those specific implementation measures that you've heard from the communities that, and that you've decided on that you want to achieve? Um, Veronica. Yeah, I think that's great. Maybe the one thing um, that I would add or that I would emphasize is that I think especially if the climate emergency declaration or, or plan is in place and it's now coming to implementation, I think 
uh, mapping out what that will look like or getting an understanding of what that'll look like. Um, and I think that, yeah, again, it's so different depending on the local government. But I think if um, I think often what happens is that then uh, many of those big moves or big policy um, or big policies take time to be implemented one at a time, and they also need to go to council for decisions to be made. So I think mapping out if you have a sense of what that will look like, and that might mean talking to councillors, that might mean talking to staff. Um, but I think the big step is to do coalition building at that point. Who else is going to be either pushing council to move things ahead, um, or who's going to be working with council to move things ahead, um, and and starting to map that out. And I think that's something that I've seen to be really effective in a few different municipalities is that there's a really strong coalition and whether even um, sometimes it's just a listserv of a bunch of different community organizations that are all working towards the same goal but perhaps have different tactics um, that can then be called on to support council in pushing things forward um, or to be working with staff or giving input um, to staff at key moments so yeah big I think the big the big thing that I would emphasize is relationship building and coalition building Thanks, Veronica. Ashley? Yeah, it's a definitely an interesting question. I work on both ends of this. So one of my jobs is to help activated citizens apply pressure to elected officials and their local government to keep them accountable. The other end of my job is to work in a nonprofit model to help organizations of all sectors and sizes create GHG emissions, inventories, and action plans to help actually reduce, based on science-based targets initiative, and create real targets and move towards these targets and achieve them, right? So if there's a lot of different lenses, like what's next is hard because it's, it's depending on what you're looking at and where you want to go. So there's like the social lens of like the initiatives that you're trying to push forward into your community and finding that partnership, that cross collaboration and that core group of people within your community that also support that. And then there's like the logistical part of it, because like you can go to your city council and tell them that they want this all they want. But if they're working sustainability off the side of their desk because you live in a smaller municipality and they don't have the resources or they don't have the wherewithal, they don't have the knowledge. Like there's a lot of resources that are already out there. You don't need to recreate the wheel or start something like there is so much out there that can help them. Starting with the Federation of Canadian Municipalities five-step framework, which is essentially what we use at Green Economy Canada as well that will help steward along GHG reductions. Now, the FCM says that Canadian municipalities host to 44% of GHG, basically decision-making opportunities. But unless they are there and looking at actually what the imprint of their city is, it's not as easy as you think. So you could possibly think that some of the larger contributors to um, GHG and carbon accounting could be one factor but in reality when you're doing energy audits and you're actually looking below it could be a completely different factor so i feel like there is this is a very complicated question because it depends on which lens you're looking at as to what's next but as veronica said mapping out a plan and like knowing what's next becoming um informed on the opportunities the uh 
you know, the, the programs, the initiatives and the resources that are already out there and bringing them forward. So having that solutions based mentality instead of like out there with your pitchfork saying we want change, but actually bringing forth opportunities for change, benchmarking what other other regions with the same municipal size or urban sprawl are doing and trying to see if you could adapt those types of solutions within your community, bringing those forward on a tangible and realistic effort, that is where you're going to actually see a lot more move forward because it's one thing to tell somebody march but it's another thing to give them directions on where to go and how to get there so it's a very collaborative effort and i know that it really feels a lot of like david versus goliath but we do all have an important part to play and all of the things that we represent all of the things that we have value and all of the things that make our municipalities important that build our sense of place like those are things that you can build again that value-based messaging those initiatives initiatives that are driven on that and you can move forward with those intentions of providing solutions and not just always calling out all of the problems as well but there are opportunities out there and it really takes a village it takes all of us working together and and I know that sometimes it feels like there's so much resistance out there but you know in the business sector it's coming down to um contracts like you need to have all of these targets and initiatives built out within your organizations and cities are are starting to demand that within the procurements of their contracts so it's coming down policy wise and policy is another thing that we really need and i hate trust me you know i'm all about sticking it to the man and hate to be the first person to say this but we do need stronger policies for things like building codes and minimal codes of what we should actually 